Hello you, my name is Lauren Layfield and this is Your Next Podcast, the show the podcast fans everywhere have been waiting for. If you have ever gone totally blank when someone's asked you to recommend a show, or if you've ever spent a whole journey failing to find the next podcast to binge on, I totally feel your pain. I know how hard it is to find good shows to lose yourself in, and even harder to think of podcasts to share with your friends. But don't worry, I am on the case. You can relax now. Every week, I'll bring you the first episode of a brand new podcast, which I have tried and tested, ready for you to get stuck into. Plus, if you follow your next podcast, more great suggestions will appear in your favorite podcast app, and you'll automatically create a fail-safe list of five-star shows to pick from, so there's no more scrolling. This week, the show I'm recommending is a series called Tiny Huge Decisions, and it is so good, this. The show is about two best friends, Mossin and Dahlia, and about whether she will carry a baby for him and his partner, Matthew. It's funny because we haven't actually had any sort of proper conversation about surrogacy. I think the very first conversation Uh, we've had about this was some really flippant joke that I made at some point when I was pregnant, which was now almost two years ago. And I think I said something to you like, if I really enjoy being pregnant, then I'll consider being a surrogate for you. It's a show about friendship and family and hopes and fears, and it's just fascinating. Surrogacy is such an interesting topic to cover. But this series also touches on race, sexuality, class, and a hilarious wrestle over a Ferrero Rocher chocolate, which I can identify with because they are my favourite. You get to eavesdrop on the conversations that Mossin and Dahlia have, listening to their processing and their choices as they grapple with the real question, is this the worst idea in the world or the greatest gift a friend can give? We spend our lives consuming music and consuming stories and vid- watching films that are all about romantic love. And I think that's great. But actually, to me, parental love, surely that's way more powerful because it's unconditional. And I think that the the power of that, I just, I think I'd feel so sad if I died without experiencing it. I really love this idea. I think it's so, so fascinating. It's got so much heart. And episode one starts with when Mossin and Dahlia met. Do you know when I knew that I was bonded to you, I guess? Can you guess? No, I've got no idea. It was when we had that argument over the Ferrero Rocher. We had a physical fight over the last Ferrero Rocher and we actually wrestled (laughs) on your floor. And then it ended up rolling underneath the table. It was genuine. It was so genuine. And I think, like, I think that was one of the, like, few examples of my guard just being completely down because I couldn't have imagined wrestling with anyone, you know? (laughs) This is a story about friendship and family, about hopes and fears, about the joys and the difficulties of life. It's about two people, these two people, talking about rolling around on the floor over a chocolate. They are lifelong best friends, Mossin and Dahlia. And this is Tiny Huge Decisions, a show where we follow them as they make a potentially life-changing decision. 
I'm Ruth Barnes, and I've been working with Mossin and Dahlia for a few years now, following their journey through its ups and downs, and finally getting to an ending of sorts. An answer to one of the biggest questions you can ask a friend. Should I carry your baby? Mossin and Dahlia have been close friends since they met at Oxford University almost 20 years ago. They've been through a lot since then. Mossin's trained as a lawyer and has published a critically acclaimed memoir, and Dahlia is a medical anthropologist. There's been some other big life changes. We'll get to those. But back then, they were just two young people with an instant connection. I just immediately when I met you, I thought we're definitely going to get on. And I think what attracted me to you at first was like very obviously we both seem to share the same sense of humour and more specifically seem to share the same sense of like mischief. Absolutely. That's true. You're right. You're right. <laughs> I definitely remember that most of our early interactions involved just being really silly together and laughing a lot. Yeah. I I remember your warmth. Like, I remember just feeling like as comfortable as I did with family, you know? Yeah, I think I definitely I, felt the same, actually. And I don't think that it's a coincidence that you're not white. Especially, like, I got to university, I'd come from a majority, ethnic minority part of London. Um, suddenly, I was this minority. And I think, you know, I am English, but I'd say I'm a different type of English to the kind of majority English um, sensibility. And I think that there was a a way of being that I experienced at Oxford and you were completely outside of that. Like you just felt, it felt almost like when you met people, there was a, a shield up or a, a series of rules that you had to abide by. And you just didn't, you just ignored all of that. I totally know what you mean in the sense that I think, um, so I'm obviously not white, as you said, so I am Egyptian. And although I was born here, um, I definitely feel quite Egyptian. And um, I think when I was at school, kind of in the northwest of England, there were hardly any other ethnic minorities in that area and definitely not within my school. So I think I grew up with that aspect of like my social life like really feeling missing I don't think I realized that until I got to university but I don't think I didn't have any other friends like close friends really who weren't also kind of white British um and I think I definitely felt the same thing like when I met you that there was um some kind of like similarity in both of our kind of like ethnic backgrounds and definitely that sense that you felt more like family than you did like a friend So I think that was like a really important part of our friendship. Because I think that that actually, even though you were brought up in a different faith, we were essentially brought up in the same cultures. Mm. Because, you know, the culture and faith, they're they're different, but they're so intertwined. You know, they're, they're this mixture of things. They're a cocktail, right? You can't, it's so difficult to separate them. And in some ways, even though different class backgrounds, different types of British um, local areas we you grew up in Egyptian culture I grew up in Pakistani culture and at the centre of both of those is faith mm-hmm. yeah I think that is really important but I also think 
the other thing that really united us was the centre of both of our backgrounds is probably the importance of family. Exactly. The F word, family. Let's talk about that. Dahlia is married to her university crush with a young daughter. We won't be naming them in this series, but they'll be an important part of these conversations. Meanwhile, since his uni days, Mossin has also met someone and fallen in love, his new husband, Matthew, and they're looking to grow their family and have a child of their own. Okay, great. So I have put my phone on airplane, but uh, for some reason, I did put it on charge, but it's on 29%, but I'm sure it will be enough. You just (laughs) text me to say, make sure you charge your phone and you haven't even done it yourself. I know. I'm a moron. We join them in early 2021, mid-pandemic, and like everyone else, Mossin and Dahlia are catching up over video calls. But these aren't just casual conversations. They're talking about the prospect of Dahlia carrying a baby for Mossin and Matthew. Okay, then. Why do you want to have children? I mean, there's so many, there are so many reasons. I grew up in a Pakistani family and family was the centre of everything. And I love the idea of bringing new little people into that family. But, you know, can I, being completely honest, where it actually came from, have you seen that Cormac McCarthy, well, it was a book called The Road and it was turned into a film. It was this post-apocalyptic world yeah, yeah. in which this, there's this father and he does everything to protect his son. And I remember going with a group of people and afterwards we came out of the cinema and they were all so depressed. And my overwhelming feeling was, oh my God, I want to be a dad. Because I thought, I can't, I've never felt that sort of love. And I can't imagine what it must feel like to just feel like there's this one purpose you have in life and it's to protect this living thing no matter what. And I think it's that, that deep love that I'm so attracted to. You know, like we spend our lives consuming music and consuming stories and watching films that are all about romantic love. And I think that's great. But actually, to me, parental love, surely that's way more powerful because it's unconditional. And I think that the the power of that, I just, I think I'd feel so sad if I died without experiencing it. Well, you asked me why. <laughs> it's funny because we haven't actually had any sort of proper conversation about surrogacy. I think the very first conversation uh, we've had about this was some really flippant joke that I made at some yeah. point when I was pregnant, which was now almost two years ago. And I think I said something to you like, if I really enjoy being pregnant, then I'll consider being a surrogate for you. Or something like that. Yeah, maybe. And it was just like a, a yeah. kind of stupid joke. But at the same time, it was one of those things that I said, like, genuinely, but I don't exactly know where it came from. And then, yeah, fast forward, like, many months, almost a year later, I'd already had a baby. But I think we weren't like, oh, by the way, you know, you said that thing. I think it was more, we were just talking about the future, right? Yeah. Which we do a lot of. All I can tell you is that for me... It's just been this thing that's on my mind and it's been on my mind. Maybe not when I was pregnant, to be honest. Um, I think I did. I was just making a joke then. But definitely since I've had a baby, it's been this thing in the back of my mind, which is having a baby's like been amazing, but I feel like I can't quite enjoy it to its full potential, knowing that it's something 
that you would like to have in your life that at the moment is not available to you? So really, it's a very selfish it's thing that really you're doing. It's a very selfish thing. <laughs> <laughs> I knew you were going to say that. Okay, so Mossen and Dahlia can't stay serious for very long. But I'm learning that that's how the two of them handle serious conversations like these. Conversations full of difficulty and complexity. Hearing them talk so openly about this stuff gives a real sense of their close bond, forged in some extremely difficult times. I mean, definitely like the part of our relationship that I remember the most is the first kind of four years when we were at university together. And yeah. I remember that whole period being characterised by, I think we probably saw each other every day. We spent yeah. vast amounts of time together, like most of the day, if not all of the day together. And <laughs> we just talked. And I ha honestly can't remember really what we talked about. Like we, we were doing things and we were being silly and we were socialising <clears throat> with other people, but a lot of it was spent, me and you, in like yeah. quite deep and important conversation in between all of that. And I think the other thing that also really united us, actually, um, we can't really forget, is like a real sense of um, romance. Because actually, I remember a lot of our conversations revolved around love and relationships and yeah. like both wanting to know what that felt like and to experience that. Um, and so I suppose it was quite interesting that, yeah, in that whole time, like in the first year that we knew each other and became quite close, you never really felt like it was the time to talk about your sexuality. But when we were at university, even in 2003, actually there was nobody out at Keeble, which is one of the biggest colleges at Oxford, right? There was nobody out um, that I can remember. I'm sure I'm forgetting somebody. So I think that although I was having to deal with quite a lot in terms of my sexuality because of my religious background, I didn't want to... I just felt like the two couldn't coexist. And so I was trying to repress my sexuality in favour of, of leading a traditional Pakistani life. But there was this layer on top of all of that of a society that still hadn't fully accepted homosexual relationships as being equal to heterosexual relationships. Like mm. when 2003, gay marriage was not mm. legal, you know? Yeah, so I think that it was... It was a difficult time to to talk to anybody, and I don't know. I mean, I guess some some ways I felt I felt bad, like because I felt like I was lying to you. You know, like I felt like there was this person who I really loved and trusted, but I couldn't share it with them. But it just felt inconceivable to share it with anybody. It just felt like my whole world would crumble. And when you are 19 years old and you are confronted with something that is inside you that is inconsistent with everything that you've ever been taught. I think I just wasn't equipped for it. In his first years at university, Mossin struggled to come to terms with his sexuality, while keeping it a secret from everyone, even his new friend, Dahlia. But on one fateful night, it was Dahlia who became the first person to hear the truth. So uh, you might remember that it was our friend's birthday, and you guys all looked at me and said, we want to go out partying. Where should we go? I had surreptitiously been walking past gay clubs in Soho because I had, like, by myself recently, because I'd had this sense that I needed to go inside. And as soon as we were inside, I was just like, oh, my God, I'm like 100% gay. <laughs> um, 
Um, but then that night we were staying at a friend's house and it was like four in the morning and I couldn't sleep because I was so just overwhelmed by that emotion and that feeling and all those feelings I'd felt. Um, and then I went into the bathroom. I don't know how we both ended up on the bathroom floor. And then we sat there for three hours. So literally until like seven in the morning. Yeah, so you you were obviously really struggling with wanting to express something, but the way you were expressing it was very much like you had done something and that it was something that was completely unforgivable. That and evil, if, yeah. And evil, if your family knew, if I knew, we wouldn't want to be friends with you, we wouldn't want to have anything to do with you. And I suppose that was like really representative of all your own internal like struggles and demons with how you thought like being gay played into what kind of person you were. Um, yeah. But I just really strongly remember kind of panicking and thinking like, oh my God, he's killed someone. <laughs> yeah, you asked me, didn't you? you like, have, eventually you were like, have you killed? Because I couldn't speak. I couldn't say it. And then I don't, and then why did you just, you just blurted it out and I, I don't I know. did eventually, yeah. And then I think that day we went back to uni and on the walk home, I was like talking to you about guys that were attractive on the street. Yeah, so we went, we went from like this huge struggle. So then you blurted out and you said, I'm gay. And then I think I just kind of like laughed with relief. I was just like, oh, well, that's fine. Like that doesn't matter. Like who cares? Like and almost just totally like dismissed the whole thing of being like a big deal. And it was because I'd honestly built it up in my mind that you had murdered someone and we would have to confront this big issue. Yeah. Um, so yeah, you had to then confront telling your family. Yeah. And that was, I mean, that was a series of really difficult conversations, um, which you were there for a lot of, you know, in terms of just being around and supporting me through it. I remember like when I told my mum, do you remember this? I told her on a Sunday and she had a devastating reaction. She, I, told, I mean, I messaged you on the Sunday to say, I've just told my mum and it's gone appallingly. <laughs> um, but like, I remember on the Tuesday night, I messaged you to say my mum's um, going to go to work tomorrow. And you were in Oxford at the time and you got up. Do you remember this? You got up at the crack of dawn and got on a bus, came to London, came over to East London, came into my house where I was alone. And then after 15 minutes of being there, my mum called and said that she was too distraught to stay at work. So she was coming home. And so then you had to leave. Do you remember that? I do remember that. I mean, we're laughing about it now, but it was really, like, awful at the time. Awful. It was awful. <laughs> I mean, I was really, really worried about you during that period. I think, I, I remember when you first told me, and I mean, it probably sounds awful now, but my reaction was just, I just said, just run away. We're just going to have to run away. And I basically, my advice to you was to never confront this issue with your family. <laughs> oh, yeah, it was. I remember that. It was very mature. But there's like a happy ending. Yeah, um, there is, because I got married a few weeks ago. Woo! Martin, I offer you this ring. Martin, I offer you this ring. As a symbol of my love. As a symbol of my love. Thank you so much, Gail. I think I have to go home to the If anybody I wanted him to spend his life with, it would be you. So thank you for that as well. Like what was amazing, I mean, obviously it was an amazing event anyway, but it was quite an emotional event and it was emotional because actually all your family were there and they Absolutely. were all genuinely like 100% like behind you and supportive and they love Matthew. 
you've got married to. Yeah. But like, you know, since like in the last 15 years, whatever it is, like you, you married somebody who you had a crush on at uni that we would <laughs> talk about for hours. And, um, and now you've got like a gorgeous daughter. Um, but I don't know. I don't feel like, I mean, I think obviously our friendship has had to adapt to things like being abroad and di- like just being at different stages in life. But I don't feel like our bond has weakened or like changed very much. That bond has led them to now, sitting on a video call, trying to have that serious conversation about surrogacy. With the reminiscing done, Mossen and Dahlia look forward with a lot to consider. All right, so it's been a few months now um, when we first floated the idea, or when you first floated the idea, and we joked about it a bit. Mm-hmm. And then the joking continued. <laughs> <laughs> the joking continued, but it's now got a more serious element. Yeah. Which is time. Yeah, because I obviously need to um, figure out how to have children. And um, I've been told by people who've gone, who've done it, that from the moment you start the process, it takes at least two years. Uh, if, you know, if you're going down other more conventional routes. So I think the more time... More conventional surrogacy routes. Surrogacy routes or adoption. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think that the time is relevant because... Yeah, I suppose we need to get on with figuring out how we're going to have kids because it isn't straightforward, you know? Maybe the question is, like, this isn't really directed at you. It's more of a general question. Like, why do we have this sense that then it has to be a child that's, like, genetically related to us? Because I think a lot of people do feel that, right? But, like, like, why? Yeah, it's definitely a question I asked myself before I had a child. Yeah, and... I personally don't have much of a problem with being asked that question. And actually, my dream scenario would probably be to adopt a a young, like a a little girl from Pakistan, because the literacy rate for young, for for girls in Pakistan is really low. There are lots of children that need homes. And um, my heritage is Pakistani. I would, that would be my preference. But for, because we're a gay couple, it's just not an option. Mm. I think we are exploring surrogacy at the moment because it seems like the thing that we'd like to do. But I can see why adopting a child is a wonderful act. And I don't know. I mean, just literally talking to you about it now, I still kind of think, oh, maybe that is what we should do. Well, there's no should, right? It's not about what we should do. Yeah, I guess not. At this early stage, Mossen and Dahlia don't know much about the surrogacy process, beyond the fact that it's complicated. Just a quick note here on terminology. In parts of the world, surrogate is used to refer to women who donate their own eggs as part of the process, while gestational carrier refers to women who have eggs from someone else implanted using IVF, so no biological connection to the child. Mossen and Dahlia have already decided that she would be this kind, a gestational carrier. 
Now, just to really confuse everyone, here in the UK, surrogate is commonly used for both types of surrogacy. And that's the term you'll hear us using in the series. Actually, before we had this conversation about me and you, I think if you'd asked me what my views about surrogacy were generally, I was a little bit like... Um, unsure about it. Yeah. Well, because, actually, even maybe a little bit against it. Yeah. Well, I mean, I think, <laughs> no, I understand that because, you know, you're a medical anthropologist. And it's more that I found it really difficult to imagine what someone would go through to carry a baby for that long, for nine months, and then give it away, even though completely like willingly, like, but just found it really difficult to understand that. And then when I was pregnant and then I did have a child, I found it even more like difficult to imagine it. But yet also that was exactly the situation in which that's when I brought this conversation up with you because I could also kind of imagine it yeah, for the first time ever. But maybe because I could imagine like how amazing it would be to be able to do that. Because it is amazing. Like, to just, like, grow this little person. And it would be so amazing if, like, you and Matthew could have, like, a little person too. I know. What greater gift could you give anybody? Like, genuinely. Can you think of (laughs) anything that you could give to somebody? No, and I don't even buy you gifts because I know there's no point. Because you don't like anything. No, I don't. But like, also, you you wouldn't have to buy me a birthday present ever again. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we could agree that. But seriously, like, like, I would feel forever indebted to you. Like, I would feel so... Yeah, but that's a weird... I don't want that. That's really creepy. Like, who wants their friends to be indebted to you? Okay, well, maybe that's the wrong way of putting it. Well, I think I probably would, to be honest. But I think... I think the thing... The other thing that complicates this whole situation is actually less so now. I've become aware of the fact that it's not... If it's a yes or if it's a no, it's not really a decision between me and you. Like, there are actually lots more factors involved in this and other people involved in this, who we will talk about later. But it's 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 become aware, like, much more aware to me recently that this isn't a decision for me and you to make. Who do you think else? Who else do you think well, is involved? Matthew, but Matthew seems pretty, like, blasé about the <laughs> <laughs> um, Like, when I spoke to him again a few weeks ago, he was just like, yeah, it'd just be really fun. <laughs> That's because he doesn't have to carry the child. Well, yeah, fun for you. Yeah. Um, No, but obviously, like, my husband. Yeah. I'm still... This is a totally different conversation, but, like, the thought of telling my parents or my family. Yeah. Not that they should in any way influence the decision, but it's just, like, another piece of admin that's, like, weighing (laughs) on my mind. I mean, that isn't... That is going to be complicated. Like, I know your family. I know it's going to be complicated. I mean, I think that my mum, as much well, as Well, your mum has already had to come to terms with you being gay. Yeah, so exactly. Yeah. Like she's so got I think less that, yeah, to yeah, yeah. That, that path has been... Uh, but it's an interesting thing late. in the sense that I think in in your family circles and in my family circles, I've certainly never come across, like, let's say in the Egyptian Christian community, nor in the Pakistani Muslim community, yeah. the whole idea of surrogacy. Like, it's not something that has been talked about or no. that I've been aware of or that I think my parents would be... Even, yeah... Cognizant of. No. Yeah, I mean, I think that my... Well, when I first told my parents that I wanted to have kids, I mean, obviously I wasn't even with Matthew at the time. 
and they they couldn't even get their head heads around the idea that a gay person could have children. So to have got them to the point where they now accept Matthew and I could talk to them and say, we're thinking of having children. I mean, I don't know how they'd react. You know? Well, the point is we don't know, right? It might be fine. Yeah, right. Also. <laughs> yeah, right. I could probably do an impression of what your mum is going to say. She's going to scream. <laughs> the other thing I do think we need to explore seriously is what happens like... First of all, if I don't want to do this, or yeah. if you don't want to do it, which I think we keep thinking is really not likely, but you never know, right? <laughs> Your face is like... No, it's yeah. re- no. you're right. It is interesting. Because let's say, for example, let's just say I thought, actually, as much as Dahlia wants to do this, I can't ask this of you. Yeah. Yeah, right. You'd ever think that. <laughs> no. Of course I would ask it of you. <laughs> but let's say but I'm yeah, being selfless like, so, for one yeah, moment. Exactly. Yeah. Let's imagine a world in which I'm selfless. Some people might... Other people who aren't us might come to that conclusion, right? Yeah. So it's worth thinking about that as a possibility. Other thing is, it is also likely, and this is where we need to understand the medical side of things, Mm. that maybe it just wouldn't work. Yeah. And that it's not like a 100% success rate. It's quite, like, I don't, I do want to know more about it because my understanding is it's like... There's a lot of injections involved. There's a lot of injections, but also there's not, I don't even think necessarily like it's... Well, always viable. I think we have started to think about other options. Because yeah, I did I also because I didn't want to put that much pressure on you because I realized that every day that we're not doing something, it feels like we're waiting for you. And I didn't want that to be the case. So we have started thinking about Well, I just think in life anyway, you should always yeah. never put all your eggs in one basket. But what about I mean I But let's say biggest... so, and also like, you know, misca- like there are lots of things that can happen. That does worry me stillbirth like horrible things yeah all of Diseases, that worries me like all of that but all of stuff. that worries me not I mean maybe it's easy for me to say this because you know it's a hypothetical baby but I worry about all those things because I would feel responsible for you having to go through that well and equally I would feel responsible for you having to go through like it's a, it is a it feels like a much even like messier picture than when yeah. it's just you and someone else choosing to have a baby and those yeah. things are really scary and horrible I guess my dream scenario would be that we did, you know, if you did do it, that we got to a point where, I don't know, that as the person that carried the child, you would have a meaningful place in that child's life as the child got older, you know? Like, not necessarily at three in the morning when we're trying to feed it, but, like, definitely... Because I guess for me, like, you'd be an important part of the child's life, regardless of whether you carried it, right? Like, I, w- I want my children to have really wonderful, strong, positive female influences. And that is one thing that I think about as a gay couple with, you know, I think it's so important for children to have women to bond with. And so I'd be asking that of you long term, but I understand that immediately afterwards that would be really difficult. But I guess the dream scenario is that, that yeah, that there would be that kind of relationship between us and you and child yeah my ultimate hope and dream is that you and Matthew have a child what by whatever means possible that's what I want for you guys like more than anything like more than I even want a child another child I don't want another (laughs) child I want you to just give us give us your daughter then (laughs) you can have it I think the one thing I did say She's to so you, um, in all seriousness, and I do actually stand by this and I do mean this, is that I don't think I could 
make the decision to have another child of my own if I hadn't been a surrogate for you. But I feel like what's really worrying me like in the long term is, is that going to be just too much emotionally and something that I won't be able to deal with and won't even be able to do to carry a baby for nine months, even though I know it's not mine genetically, it's yours, like you are the parents, but still have to hand that baby over at some point. And even if it's still in my life as your child, yeah. I, I at the moment am really struggling with whether I can actually do that. Do you know, it's so funny because I think if you were telling me you you were thinking about doing this for anybody else, I'd be like, don't do it, don't do it. <laughs> so it's so weird because I'm kind of torn. So the one thing that really scares me is losing you, actually. <gasps> I guess if somebody said to me right now, you're going to end up with a child, but your relationship with Dahlia will be irre- irreversibly damaged by it, then I'd probably just say, well, then I don't want to do this. And I'd find another way, you know? Like at the end of the day, like, I mean, we talk about and we moan about like work all the time. We moan about like so <laughs> much stuff. And like, it just doesn't matter, does it? Like, it really doesn't matter. Because I suppose like at the end of all of this, like, you know, the dream scenario is that you have this amazing, beautiful child and that I will have just been a bit of a part of that, but, like, that's not even really the point. The point is, at the end of it, there's this whole new life that's created, however it came about. Yeah. Which is incredible. In some ways, all of the stuff we've just discussed is why, to me, it feels like there's quite a lot of undue pressure on you when it comes to this decision. Like, because everything that we just talked about, like being family to one another, protective of one another, like loving each other, helping each other get to this point where we're in like committed relationships that we're both happy with. Like all of that, although it feels like a wonderful part of our history and our heritage together, it also feels like it makes the decision way more complicated. And I, and I guess... I want to take all of that out of it for you because it, it wouldn't be fair for all of that to be brought to the table. But then the only reason we're having this conversation exactly. is because of all of those things. Exactly. So I think that it's not pressure, but it's just complication, right? Yeah. Like it's, I don't see it as pressure. I just see it as like the entanglement of many different things, which in some ways is like quite real and quite nice. Mm. Um, the thing, I think I've said this to you before that I'm, actually maybe struggle with the most is that you have been the person like in my life really that quite consistently over the last you know almost two decades has been there to help me make decisions about important things and you can't play that role to the same extent in this decision because this is the first decision that we've like had to make that's really about both of us I think we've always been quite sensitive about incorporating some of that complexity into how we advise each other about what decisions we should make in life. So hopefully that will stand us in good stead. Well, let's find out. Let's find out. Tiny Huge Decisions is a Chalk and Blade production for APM Studios. At Chalk and Blade, the executive producer is Ruth Barnes. 
The showrunner and story editor is Louise Mountain. And the producer and sound designer is Matt Nielsen, with original music by Ian Chambers. At APM, the executive producer is Erica Krauss. The senior production manager is Nick Ryan. And the executives in charge are Joanne Griffith, Alex Shaffert and Chandra Kavati. With special thanks to Dahlia, Mossin and Matthew. To make sure you don't miss the rest of the story, search for Tiny Huge Decisions on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon Music, or wherever you find your podcasts. Once you've tapped follow for that show, don't forget to do the same for this show too, so you can always find your next podcast. All my recommendations from the whole series will also be on Podcast Rex at www.podcastrex.com. That is www.podcastrex.com. <laughs> 